Hello and welcome to another edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Axon was started almost 100 years ago out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. It's that same passion that drives them today. With a vision for a better experience for both farmer and dealer, they set out to create a better way to move more iron. When you partner with Axon, you get immediate access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. Axon carries all major brands and sizes of tires, wheels, and tracks. From custom colors and sizes to fully customized wheels, you can have the solution for virtually any problem today's farmer is trying to solve. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Valley Transportation. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 or go to valleytransinc.com for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. This podcast is also brought to you by AgDirect. No matter how you buy your ag equipment from a dealer, auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. Marcus Sean Hackett. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping dealers move more iron for the past 100 years. Go to axontire.com for more information. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 or go to valleytransinc.com for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. And no matter how you buy ag equipment from a dealer, auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Sean Hackett is Hack- was with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida, and he's nice enough to come on a couple times a week to talk about what's going on in the marketplace. So, Sean, how are you doing this morning, man? Hey, Casey. How are you? I'm doing great. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to follow after that tremendous yeah. introduction. It was really good. You know, flawless, flawless. Sometimes it's hard to follow, follow greatness, Sean. I mean, I know, I know what it, I know what it feels like. The pressure, the pressure is <laughs> the on. on now. Trying to follow that, I don't know how you're going to keep up with that. But, <laughs> well, Sean, there's there's a a few things that have happened here, and it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But you put out a report um, here just yesterday, kind of talking, of, going over the uh, Tonga volcano and the effects to the atmosphere and those kind of things. And like my probably like most people, I I read about a, you know the eruption and, and the tsunamis and stuff that came along with it, but I haven't really followed back up on it much after that. And there's been quite of a quite a bit of effect to the atmosphere from that. I mean, it was for something that blew up under the water, it went up uh, something like 180 thousand feet in the air, something like that, 34 miles in the air, uh, which is really kind of um, I don't want to say it's unprecedented by any ways, but it was it was a larger volcano, and, and the effects of it, since it was underwater, were different than if it was above above ground. So there's a lot of things there, but a lot of meteorologists are chiming in with a bunch of different weather um, 
atmospheric events and stuff like that that are popping up. So talk about that a little bit, Sean, and, and kind of what your research has been been uh, well, bringing out. Remember, we talked about that during grand solar cycle minimums because of the increase in cosmic rays hitting the atmosphere, going into the surface of the Earth and, and messing around with the mantle, you do tend to get these volcanic explosivity indexes of, uh, you know, six or higher more frequently. Um, and this was something we've been forecasting to occur. And this one, from a column height perspective, in order to have a VEI six or higher, you need to go 30 kilometers. The, the, the column height of, of effluent has to be 30 kilometers high or higher. Um, the estimates for the bulk of this was that it was uh, it went north of 30 kilometers, maybe as high as 35. Some say uh, some of the steam went a little higher, but for the most part, this was definitely you know a VEI six column height. Um, the problem is because it was an underwater volcano, the normal sulfur dioxide effluent that would normally be emitted into the atmosphere if it was above ground, was far, far less. So just to put this in the perspective, Mount Punatubo that went off in 1991 that blew up over 30 kilometers deposited 15 million tons of sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere. This one, according to the calculations of the scientists, um, it deposited 500,000 tons of sulfur dioxide. So only one thirtieth the amount. Um, and that's because it was deep in the ocean. And so you have this, you have this high pressure, cold ocean that was condensing the sulfur dioxide. So when it came out, it was in more of a dispersed, uh, condensed form instead of being above ground where it would just be shot up like a hot gas. And that saved the day for why this is not going to have a material impact to global weather. It can have a local impact to Southeast Asia for a little while, but it's it's not going to have the kind of impact that w that we're expecting to see when you get one of these that's above ground. You need a lot more sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere because what happens is once it gets up there, it'll stay up there for so many years. But because the amount in there is so, is so small, it's going to disperse really fast. And by the time it's dispersed around the entire stratosphere, the the mirroring effect which sulfur dioxide aerosols provide in terms of blocking the sun will be very, very minimal. So we, we don't expect this to be the volcanic winter effect that we think is coming. Um, but it is a warning sign that these kinds of eruptions are going to be more frequent. Um, and as you know, in some of our past uh, podcasts that I've done with you, we've mm -hmm. gone over this solar cycle in more detail. The period from 2028 to 2035, the trough of the after solar cycle 25 is over, is the more likely time that we would see one of these occur above ground and and really deliver but but it's a warning sign of what what does a, a volcanic eruption like this look like and how quickly can it change things right just like that but fortunately we dodged a bullet on this one we dodged a bullet uh yeah maybe southeast asia could have some cooling issues some 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 weather volatility because there is a, a sulfur dioxide plume that will sit there for a little while but it's not going to have a material impact fortunately uh, for the for the global um, weather patterns and food production, at least not on this, you know, not this one. So we, mm -hmm. but but it is a good test case of what's to come, and I and I certainly hope um, maybe it's cause for preparation or or how how would we have handled this if this had delivered? 
uh, 50 million tons of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere, and we went into a, a two-year volcanic winter. You know, maybe we ought to prepare for how would we handle that. Maybe, maybe, maybe this will get that thought process going because we have about, you know, according to us, maybe we have about five or eight years to get ready for the for the for the one that will come that will probably create that outcome. You know, right? So, um, what was it, Mount? Tambora, right? That that went off in eighteen, fifteen, or sixteen, whenever it was. That was the the year without a summer. Could the, yes. would have this been a similar situation? Had this volcano went off and, and has well, done similar effects to that? Well, Mount Pe- uh, Tambora was a was a volcanic explosivity index of seven. Okay. This one this one would have been a six had it been above ground. Okay. Now anything six or above. Casey, it has a dramatic impact on global weather. But but just like the Richter scale, if anyone understands the Richter scale, it's exponentially, and we go from six to seven, it's exponentially more effluent. It's exponentially further into the stratosphere. It has a exponentially more impactful um, impact to to the climate and to the atmosphere. So so it is an order of magnitude more severe to be a VEI-7. Those are even more rare than the VEI-6s are. So that was a VEI-7. This one would have been not as bad as Tembora, but it would have been pretty severe. But it would, but, but, but given that this was more of a VEI-6, it, it would have been a less of an impact. But it would have been in the sphere where you would have had some kind of a volcanic winter develop, but not as severe as we saw during Mount Tembora at that time. Right on. So. Okay. All right. Good way to start off Thursday morning. Um, happy, happy times. <laughs> All right, so Fed came out with their uh, notes yesterday. We're going to raise rates. They don't know for, I mean, they, I don't know. Did you really get a good feel for when they were, they were kind of leaning towards March, but they were kind of him-hawing around a little bit? I mean, I guess what's your, what's your thoughts there? And then, you know, looking at that, you know, how, what's your impact you see here moving through the markets this week? I mean, they said they're going to raise uh, interest rates in March. Look, mm-hmm. they want to pop the inflation here a little right. bit. The the, um, uh, the politicians are very, very worried. The last time that I recall that we had an election with this kind of inflation was the election of 1980 mm-hmm. when Reagan was going against Carter, if you recall. I do. I know. I remember. I was three. But yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And I know, I'll, remember, I'll never forget that the, the, the famous... The famous words of Reagan was, you know, um, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Yep. Um, and, and there was something called the misery index, which was the economy plus inflation, which was stagflation. You know, was it because the economy was weak and we had high inflation? You know, was it the misery index? And so this is kind of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an economy that's sluggish and we're dealing with a lot of inflation. Um, and so the politicians are at the midterm elections are looking out and going, you know, we're going to be blamed for all this. So they just appointed, you know, federal chairman Powell back in. And I and he and they and they, they put a, the, the president appointed him right after he spent, I think, a couple of days at the White House in uh, in talks. Mm-hmm. I think the game plan is that's what you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they said, look, if, we, if we're putting you in there, you got to get this inflation down. Yeah. And I think the first half of the year, the name of the game is pop the real estate bubble. Because remember, one of the big problems is cash. The the rents are going through the roof, and the common person out there, middle America, uh, that that, you know, the majority of people that vote in this country are looking at their rents escalating five, ten, fifteen, twenty percent, and they can't and they can't afford it. So you got to get real estate 
to pop. So you get those rental rates to stop going up, and you got to start popping the. You got to stop. You got to start popping the the inflation down a little bit, um, and then. When you get that genie in the bottle a little bit, then you can start taking a more, uh, uh, you know, kind of you can take your, your foot off the pedal. The, the, the delicate balance right now is you want to you pop the inflation bubble, but you don't want to do it so severely that you cause an economic recession. Because mm-hmm. it cause like a recession, well, then that's not going to be good for voters in the fall either. So, right. so the, the, the tightrope is do enough to get it down, but not so much that we... We, we, we nosedive and that's really so my idea is aggressive early try to be aggressive now and then and then and then pull back and try to you know try to keep things together for the elections that, that's the way I see it. I'm no ge- geopolitical um, you know expert here but I think that's the game plan the way I see it so. yeah so I'm, I'm releasing a podcast here where I had Rich Potson on yesterday um, and I'll have that out here hopefully this morning but he yeah. brought that very thing up we talked about that a little bit and his thought is by the end of the year that you know right now we're you know we're between six and eight percent depending on inflationary period depending on what you look at and how you measure that. But he, he's thinking that they they want to try to get it down to four or something like that, and they could easily do that in in uh, in a year, year and a half, something like that, and kind of be down to that four percent range. So we'll see what happens there. But with that being said, what's happened with the market, the outside markets this week, and how how bad they've been pummeled? A lot of money has flown over to to the commodity side, especially the ag commodity side and oil. But you would you would think that with oil being so tied to the economy and these fears of of, of all the uh, you know recessions and those kind of things coming around that that oil wouldn't be on the streak that it's on. But here of late, it's um, I didn't see what it closed at yesterday, but it was almost ninety bucks yesterday. Up Brent was anyway. So um, oil is making some big runs. They had some big runs this week in in uh, a lot of different of the commodity marketplaces. So as you look at the, at the market now, there's a lot of fun buying um, with money flowing in the ag commodity side of it. So what's your, what's your thoughts there? Well, we, we, we have a very, very bifurcated time because we have this Fed trying to cool things down, but then we have this geopolitical mess right. with Russia. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, are they going into Kazakhstan or Ukraine? Are they not? You know, are, are, are they going to hold back energy supplies to the rest of the world? Are they going to hold back wheat supplies to the rest of the world? So we had a big surge. Then we had a, a quick knockdown. So so on top of what the Fed is doing, we have this geopolitical rope-a-dope, we're calling it. Um, and I think crude oil is part of that geopolitical rope-a-dope. Say, so wait a minute. And we know Russia is a huge producer of crude, a huge exporter of crude. And if they get into a, a contest or a, a, a situation where they're – uh, going going to go in and we're going to be putting sanctions or there's going to be war. You know, how available are those exports going to be for a while? And so the crude oil market is telling you that the market's worried about that supply, despite the worries that, you know, maybe the Fed slows the economy down. So it's really <laughs> it's very, very difficult market right now to figure any one day to the next. Like I said, we took off a few weeks back that it got crushed and it took off. You know, then it got hit very hard yesterday. So very, very um, frenetic trading, a lot of noise, but not a lot of trends right now. And so I think what, what's, what, you know, obviously Russia has to make a decision. Either they're going to do something or not. One way or the other, it provides clarity, Casey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would think in the next 30 days, we're going to get clarity either they are or they're not. Secondly, um, I think the Federal Reserve, after they raise rates in March, will give a clear mandate of what they're really going to do. That 
provides clarity. Once you get clarity, then the market can move on and, and develop whatever trends that they feel they need to. Right now, they're still in this. We're not sure exactly what the Fed's up to, and we're not exactly sure what Russia's up to. So there's days they want to buy, and there's days they want to sell, and that means tremendous, tremendous volatility right now. So, Yep. All right. Let's take a look at what's going on with um, some some cotton right now. Cotton is, uh, like you talked about last week, cotton has, uh, was it, was December cotton, 23 cotton was like a dollar. And um, I guess as you take a look at what's going on there, they've got to beat up a little bit today, but cotton is falling right along with oil again, like you've talked about. So when you look at cotton, what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, uh, cotton is caught right in the middle of uh, worries over a weakening economy, weakening demand, of course, increased acres, all those bearish factors. But at the same time, you know, the crude oil market and pumping up all those synthetic fibers that cotton competes against, you know, keeps kind of a bit in this market. We still think, though, in aggregate right now, we think that the worry over demand and the worry over increased acres will win out between now and March, Casey. And we think in aggregate, we're going to see prices fall, you know, maybe back to that dollar, dollar five area that we were at before in the nearbys. Uh, we think for now, those forces will be greater than the forces of the geopolitical, at least in cotton, because it is such a, a cyclically sensitive and a dollar cotton in new crop December, that really works, Casey. I mean, they're going to yeah. plant. They're going to plant. They're going to plant acres they haven't planted in ten years, fifteen years. They're going to plant some acres uh, in cotton this year. So, so I think in the aggregate, I'd be worried about a downswing, and we continue to feel that if you're a producer, especially on new crop corn, uh, that's a mighty, mighty attractive level to be locking in some of that. Uh, cash crop that you're going to be producing. We find it hard not to think that that's something you ought to be doing. Um, you know, obviously, we, you know, the market can have some other problems later and all. And you can always uh, take some countermeasures, but a dollar cotton is rarely afforded to you yeah. in the new crop at this time of the year. And I don't care. I don't care if you have a half a crop, that's still going to be a profitable price for you. Right. So I just think that's something they ought to be doing, Casey. And I'm a little worried about cotton right now. Yeah. So. Okay, so I'm reading this headline this morning and trying to trying to read between the lines, and I'm sure it's fueled by a couple of different things. But I want your opinion on it. Russia came out and their ag minister um, halted all their grain sales from the state intervention fund. Um, didn't provide any details, nothing. Just said we're done. We're not selling anything out of this. We're we're gonna we're gonna halt doing this, and then like dropped the mic and walked away. Um, a lot of that probably is the tensions between you know possible war but also that means that they're pretty low then if they're worried about that as well so i guess what are your thoughts there well we know we know russia had a terrible wheat crop right. we know their supplies are not as large as they would like them to be we know the global supplies are not what we like them to be that's a fact um so you know whether they're going to admit that they'll say oh we're going to do this because of the tensions and but you know that may be just masking the fact that they're really worried about their own personal supply and, and they have they're dealing with wild inflation too um so that's all part of 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 the process that at the end of the day if we if we strip the noise away we need to have a big winter wheat crop mm -hmm. we need to have a big winter wheat crop to, to kind of put some of those bushels of wheat back into the you know into the coffers and i don't think we're going to do it casey i'm looking at the u.s winter wheat crop looking awful uh, i'm looking at the you know winter wheat crop in russia looking pretty awful i don't see a big winter wheat crop 
uh, this spring to help offset the catastrophically poor spring week, uh, spring crop that we had mm -hmm. um, over the summer into the fall. And so ultimately what's going to drive wheat prices is that very fact. Um, yes, we're going to go up a lot or down a lot. You know, they're going to hold us. But what, what, what all this is saying is we don't have enough right now. And I think that any weather issues whatsoever that were to, were, that would be, would surface between now and post dormancy here in the spring, you know, and the wheat market is going to have to react fairly violently on that. And, and we think that's, you know, that's probably a, uh, a likely outcome here, given our weather forecast, especially for the U.S. We're looking for late uh, winter ending, a lot of frost late in the season uh, and a lot of uh, snow melt and uh, and flooding in the northern uh, central plains and all. I just We just don't see that providing the comfort that the market needs that it can get a big winter wheat crop and kind of help alleviate the shortage, at least for now. That's what we think. And so so while the geopolitical is catching all the, um, the fanfare right now, we think beyond all of that, because that eventually will calm down. Eventually, that'll calm down. It'll still be, do we have enough wheat? And what's the winter wheat look like? And then we think that that answer is we're not going to have enough. That's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah. Okay. Well, Sean, good stuff as usual, man. If folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing at Hackett Financial, what's the best way to do that? Our website is Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. Lots of information on there for your listeners to take a look at to see if what we do could be of value to your listeners. Right on. Well, I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you find the latest editions of the Moving Iron Podcast. Also go to movingironllc.com for everything Moving Iron related and Moving Iron Summit related as well. So if you want some more information about the Moving Iron Summit, make sure you go to uh, my the email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com and you can get all the information you need right there because I will answer you back. So, Sean, appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Thank you, Casey. And just remember, it might actually get to 32 degrees where I'm at, right? We're looking at a stark <laughs> freeze um, here in Florida. So, yeah. so you know, your, your prayers would be very much welcome, Casey. Yeah. Okay, Sean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I'm Casey Seymour, Sean Hackett. Let's go with some iron, folks. Out. <laughs> you want to have a meaningful competitive advantage to help sell more equipment. Whether you represent the sales, parts, or management department of an implement dealership, there's a surprising amount of complexity when it comes to tire, wheel, and track technology. Let Axon worry about that so you can get back to supporting your customers. Axon has leveraged years of experience to create a streamlined process that gives you a proven path to help today's grower and sell more equipment. The roots of their organization go back almost 100 years to the invention of the rubber tractor tire. Supporting agriculture is the number one driver of Axon from product development through sales and service. To find more or become an Axon dealer, head over to axontire.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Valley Transportation. Valley has over 33 years in the trucking business, moving ag and construction equipment across the country. For more information, go to valleytransinc.com or give Parker a call at 800-657-4910. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. This podcast is also brought to you by AgDirect. No matter how you buy your ag equipment from a dealer, auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hard